those four singing nuns one more big hand. Didn't they do a great job? Way better than Whoopi. Hey, our worship team does, does a great job all the time, don't they? Give them a big hand. Just say thank them here and in the back for what you do. I'm just so glad Pastor Nick is here today. He uh, walked off the stage crying last night. Uh, Mississippi State got beat by Alabama, and he's it was a tragic night, but he did make it back. So he is a man of God, even though the tide rolled on. Praise the Lord. Well, I wish Whoopi could have been here this morning and hear me conclude the series on what God is. We have been talking for several weeks now on the nature and the character of God, trying to understand not just God as we might envision him to be, but how many know God is the way he is? And our challenge is to understand him and respond appropriately. And you know, people are often confused about this. Several years ago, they were wanting to change one of the Bible versions and get rid of the uh, uh, masculine pronouns of he and make God more of a neuter, kind of a he, she, or, or a mother God. Uh, listen, I'm all for the sensitive side of man and the sensitive side of God, but the Bible reveals uh, that God is of the male gender. So there's just confusion in the world about what God is really like. And I've been trying to, in just a few short messages, to bring some clarity to it. How many know we could literally spend a year and barely scratch the surface of the magnificence of God? But we've talked about Him first and foremost, if you remember this in this series, is that God is ultimately, and most importantly, a merciful Father. He's not the God that's weighing how much right I do and how much wrong I do to see if I can barely make it across. He's a merciful God that realizes we've all messed up and we all need a Savior. But we also learn that if we reject Him as the merciful God, we'll face Him as a just judge. We saw probably the greatest picture that could be presented of what God is like in the person of Jesus. Last week we talked about God is revealed in Jesus Christ. We hopefully found great comfort in an uncertain future is that God is ultimately in control. 
Republicans and Democrats, they can't handle it. The Supreme Court, the President, but how many know God knows exactly what He's doing? And He will ultimately guide this world towards a predetermined end. We hopefully put to death this foolish idea that, uh, of evolution where we came from monkeys. Uh, how many know monkeys are monkeys and men are men? Men may act like monkeys, but they are not monkeys. And uh, we talked a bit about that. Is God that uh, the universe didn't come, Earth didn't get here from a dying star or some other gaseous explosion uh, in the Big Bang, but God created the heavens and the earth. Well, a couple weeks ago, we also learned that God is very jealous, that He doesn't want us to have idols in our life, anything that's more important than He is. And I'll conclude this morning with a message entitled, God is Worthy. And next week, I really want to encourage you to make plans to be here next week. We have what I think uh, is probably the person that can best describe uh, the message. Uh, my wife, Linnell, is going to talk about getting back up after you've been knocked down. And uh, Linnell battled cancer for a couple years, and she has gone strong for Jesus the whole time. And I think it would be a great encouragement to you and uh, just to hear her next week. She goes all over the world preaching. And uh, uh, if you know someone that's kind of been beaten down by life, maybe they've kind of given up, a divorce, a bankruptcy, whatever the case may be, uh, it just feels like God's passed them by, next week would be a great encouragement. So let's begin this morning. Revelation chapter 5, God is worthy. I want to look at a scene from heaven. The book of Revelation is a series of visions that John the Beloved, an apostle, a disciple, received from God on the Isle of Patmos when he was exiled, and the Lord showed him things. One thing in particular about heaven, we see in this passage uh, the throne of God, and around the throne of God where God sits, there are what's called four living creatures, some type of angelic being given to worship 24-7. And there's also what's called the 24 elders, probably a picture of, of the church, of the saints. And what we're doing in this passage is worshiping Jesus as the Lamb of God. You remember in the book of uh, uh, in, in John the Baptist, when Christ came into the world, he introduced him as the Lamb of God that did what? Takes away the sin of the world. Just like the Passover lamb and Moses' day kept there from being judgment over, over God's people, well, in the same way, Jesus is God's lamb that prevents the Christian from experiencing judgment on judgment day. Come on, because we've, our sins have been forgiven on the cross. So with that background, here's how worship unfolds. Revelation 5, 9, they sang a new song, and the song said, you are, you are worthy. Can you say it with me? You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. And listen why. Because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe, language, and people and nation. This is clearly referring to Jesus Christ slain on the cross. And the purpose being, because of Adam and Eve's sin, all of mankind was sold into bondage to Satan. And Jesus literally bought us back with his blood. And this is what's being rejoiced in heaven, that God has redeemed mankind. And notice, they didn't just come from America. They're not just English speaking. But they are from every, as the scripture says, tribe, language, people, and nation. And that's why the Christian message is to go all over the world. Verse 10, though, the scripture says, you have made them to be a kingdom. In other words, the kingdom is where Christ is king, and it's all that's under the rulership of God and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. 
So one day uh, in a real place called heaven, it will be more than just sitting on clouds and playing harps, but some activity is going on earth and the saints of God will reign in that activity. But look at the shift in the scene, verse 11. I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. Any mathematicians here? What's 10,000 times 10,000? A bunch. You probably got to be in math. That's 100 million. Think about this. 100 million angels plus thousands of thousands. And notice what it says they're doing. They encircle the throne of God and the living creatures and the elders. And notice what they say. In a loud voice, they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb, this is Jesus, who was slain, and listen to these words, he's worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. I suggest to you that Jesus is worth any and everything that we as created beings can give him. Worthy is the Lamb. And when they say the word worthy, it's not a word that we use a lot in our vernacular. Perhaps a word you're more acquainted with is the word deserving. So when they said Jesus is worthy, it means Jesus is deserving of everything I could offer him because of who he is and what he's done. Now this idea of deserving, if you're an employee and you've done an exceptional job and your company had a great year, how many know you're deserving of a bonus? Everybody say it. You're deserving of a bonus. How about if you're a, uh, my daughter goes to Redwater and they won district. Well, how many know those kids that played on that team are worthy of a trophy? They're worthy of a, a patch on their jacket. Uh, if there's a volunteer that's done great community service, that volunteer is worthy of recognition. Now, we understand that these are natural things we relate to, a bonus, uh, a, a trophy, some recognition, a plaque. These are what people deserve because of what they've done. But my question to you is, what is Christ deserving of? What does the Lord deserve from us? What does the Lord deserve for us because of all that he's done for us that we can barely see uh, very little of it now? We know there's a real place called heaven. We know our sins have been forgiven. We know we're redeemed. We know we're going to spend eternity. But it seems like just kind of words that are coming out of my mouth. What is Christ deserving of? I'll suggest to you today there's four things that we can give Jesus right here on this earth every day of our life. We can give him worship. We can give him our obedience, we can give him our service, and we can give him our sacrifice. Let's look at these four things this morning that I think will really help you as you relate to God about how to express the worthiness of our Savior. Let's look at the first one. God is worthy of worship. Psalm 145, the book of Psalms, it's called the Psalter. Uh, many songs were sung even in modern day time, but in parts of the biblical era, Old and New Testament, the book of Psalms became a hymnal of sorts. And notice what the writer says. He says, great is the Lord. He is most worthy of praise. No one can measure his greatness. Psalm 18.3, I called on the Lord who is worthy of praise and he saved me from my enemies. Now, here again, we see the word worthy. Praise and worship are virtually identical. They're like a brother and a sister. But the question is, why? what is worship or praise? And first of all, let me say, it's more than singing and clapping. Singing and clapping are expressions of worship. But how many know you can be thinking about what you're going to have for lunch when you're singing? Come on, anybody ever done that? 
Yeah. You can be thinking about whatever and your mind gets distracted. But the essence of worship, worship is a way that we express our adoration, our thankfulness, and our love to God. Let me say it. Through worship, whether it's in a corporate setting or, or whether it's in, in the morning. I mean, I worship in the shower when I'm waking up. Expressing love and honor and thankfulness to God because of who he is and what he's done. And this is the essence of worship. How I many know worship is not about me? Uh, worship is not about me. The main reason I worship is not because it makes me feel good, though it does. The main reason I worship is not because I enjoy the beat or the sound or the stage and lights, though I do. The main reason I worship, come on, is because he deserves it. Look in the scriptures, you see this happening. Exodus chapter 4, the picture now is Moses is going to Israel to free the people, or to Egypt. Uh, these people have been slaves for 400 years. Uh, the people that are alive at that time, they have watched their dads die. They've watched their grandfathers die and their great-grandfathers. And it's been several hundred years of slavery and a difficult time. And it'd be easy to feel like, well, God must not care. Moses goes to them and said, God has sent me to deliver you. And then the scripture says, when the people of Israel heard that the Lord was concerned about them, what did they do? They bowed down and and worship the Lord. Simply by hearing the words of the man of God, they begin to give God worship. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 6, it's very similar. In the book of Nehemiah, uh, we find that, the, remember, Israel had been taken into captivity because of their sin, and now God had brought them back after 70 years. They go back, they rebuild the temple. In the book of Nehemiah, they rebuild the wall. And after the, the wall of protection is built, uh, uh, Ezra the priest shows up. And in this particular verse, he stands before the people on a platform. He opens the Bible. And as he prepares to read, here's what the people do. Ezra praises the Lord. And all the people chanted, amen, amen, as they lifted their hands. And what did they do? They bowed down and Worship the Lord with their faces to the ground. Well, why did they do that? Well, first of all, it's because they had been slaves and now they were brought back to their homeland. Their worship had been restored. It was clear that God was once again going to allow them to be the chosen people through which the Messiah would come. They were thrilled about it. Protection had been brought to them through this wall and now the Bible had been brought back. Uh, listen, what they were really rejoicing over at this time is God gave them his word. Come on, taught them the difference between right and wrong. Uh, taught them just like he teaches us that you didn't come from a monkey. Come on now. People may act like monkeys, but you didn't come from a monkey. You're created in the image of God. See, uh, the scripture teaches us right from wrong. I don't have to go to Oprah and find out what's right and what's wrong. I don't have to go to the Judge Judy or anybody else. Come on, I can go to the word of God and it's a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my pathway. It can show me the way to make God smile. It is the Word of God, inspired of God to help me live a right life. How many know that's worthy of praise? And that's what they did. Yeah. Uh, here's another one, Job chapter 1. As this verse is written, Job is in the most difficult time of his entire life. Job uh, once was a prosperous man with a happy family. In one day, his children are all killed. In one day, all his businesses are destroyed. Animals are taken. And you would think that's a day to curse God, to turn your back on God, but not Job. In Job 1 verse 20, Job stands up. He, he tears his robe in grief. In other words, he's hurting. He shaves his head as a sign of mourning. But what did he say, Scripture say he did? He fell to the ground to worship. 
Now, he wasn't worshiping because he was happy. He wasn't worshiping because things were going well. He was worshiping because God is still good. You know, we say that little phrase a little tritely sometimes, God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. But how many know sometimes it doesn't feel like God is good? But whether I feel it or not, come on, He is still good. He is still worthy of my praise. He is still worthy to be adored. And that's what I bring Him. I bring Him my worship. And I suggest to you, worship should be a priority to us. It should be more than just the part of the service until the preaching comes. In my opinion, it is the most important part of the service because that's when we get to express adoration and thanksgiving to God. That when I come into this church house, listen, I can worship God because He loves me. Come on, because He found me when I was not looking for Him. When I was going down a wayward path headed to destruction, Jesus reached down to me, began to prick my heart of my sin, and began to call me and show me there's a better way. He began to lead a Gideon in my life that gave me a Bible. Come on. He led friends in my life that discipled me. I'm telling you, Jesus changed my life. He didn't just make my life a little better. He adopted me into his family as a son of God. And if you're a Christian, you can go before God grateful and thankful because you're a son or a daughter of God. Come on, created in the image of God, having purpose for life, having a, having a future that's bright, having a God who said, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you. Listen, Linnell, Linnell had to go in for a CT scan this week. She banged her head up in Mexico. And, 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 and I guarantee you, she's going in there. She's thankful that she's not alone. Come on. No doctor and no nurse in that tunnel. But God is an ever-present help in time of trouble. I'm telling you, he, we have reason to give thanks to him. He said he's gone into heaven to prepare a place for us. And he's gone to prepare a place. And he's going to come back for us one day. I'm telling you, he's worthy of our praise. Come on, give it to him this morning. We bless him, the one who's worthy of all praise and all honor and all glory. Well, that's the first thing he deserves is our worship. Let me give you another one now. God is worthy of our obedience. This is a good one. Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. It's early in the, the life of Jesus' ministry here on earth. He's not yet found his disciples, and he's about to get a few. Matthew 4, 18, Jesus is walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and he sees Peter and Andrew throwing a net into the water, and they were fishermen, as for fish for a living. And Jesus called out to them, come and follow me, and I'll show you how to fish for people. Now, that was something that Jesus asked them to do, and they had a choice to obey or disobey. Just like you and I have a choice to obey or disobey when God asks you to do something. Whether God asks you to go on a missions trip or, or God asks you to, to, to help a needy person with some finances or, or God asks you, to, you know, to go after someone that's lost and backslidden or, or just to simple, send a simple text message to people that have been missing church that just need to know someone cares. Let me know when God asks us to do something, we have a chance to obey him. And that's exactly what they did. Verse 20, they left their nets at once and they followed him. Same thing we're doing. Verse 21, a little farther up the shore, they saw James and John sitting in a boat with their father, Zebedee, cleaning the nets. And Jesus called to them too. And immediately, James and John followed Jesus, leaving the boat with their father behind. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. Why would these men leave their jobs? Why would they, in a, in a very real sense, leave dad? Because Jesus, come on, deserves our obedience. 
Let me ask you if we could make this a little more real. Could you leave your job today? If Jesus were to speak to you and say, I want you to go to a mission field, could, could you resign? Could you just turn your back on it? Could you sell your, your fishing boat? Jesus wouldn't ask for a duck boat, but he might ask for a fishing boat. Could you, could you sell your fishing boat? Come on. Could, could you give away the clothes in your prom, uh, closet without a promise that, that you, you know, you're going to f- have it filled back up? But, but if he asks you to do something, could you do it? I, I want to suggest to you that it shouldn't just be a, a, a drudgery thing that we do like when you're a kid and your parents force you to do it. Uh, scripture tells us uh, in 1 John 5, 3, loving God means keeping his commandments and his commandments are, are not burdensome to us. In other words, it's something that may be hard, but it's something we find joy in. I remember when Jesus called me to, to go into the ministry. I was in my early 20s. I was in California. Uh, I, I didn't like California, but uh, I was there. Uh, it's where I was discipled. And I, felt, I really felt, as I felt called to the ministry, that God also wanted me to go to California and go to school and be trained under my wife's dad. And uh, I tell you what, I had a real turmoil in my heart. I love my family in Mississippi. I did not like California. Uh, it was, I didn't have any money. I didn't have hardly anything to speak of when I was out there. And I can remember being home for several months after I got out of the Navy, working with my dad. And one day my dad asked me, he said, you've got a round trip ticket to California, don't you? And I said, yes, dad, I do. I, I feel that's what God wants me to do. Now, my parents couldn't relate to that at the time. They thought it was just a cult out there or something like that. They were not spiritually where they are today, but you know, it was something God asked me to do, and it was hard, but I never regret doing it. Come on. It's why my wife, I guarantee, I try to figure this out sometimes. When Linnell, it was two years ago, she was diagnosed right after, um, right after Thanksgiving. You got there, a mammogram, and they say, come back, we want to do a biopsy. I mean, no, that's not a good thing when you get that kind of follow-up call. And then when the doctor says, I need to see you about it, that's really not a good sign. Well, it was right at that time, and uh, she was just barely into her treatment. She'd had surgery and, and, and a little bit more, and uh, she got her call to go to Haiti. And she said, I think God wants me to go. And I said, I'm thinking, girl, you need to be here with your feet up. Come on, taking advantage of all this extra attention and, and love and stuff. And, uh, you, you know, you need to be kicking back. And she said, I know, but God's called me to go down there. Why does she do that? Because obedience, come on, he deserves our obedience. I, I married a missionary. It's in her heart. But, but you can say yes or you can say no. But I suggest to you that the Christ on the throne, the Christ, the Lamb of God that was slain for us so we could have an eternity with him, deserves a few years of obedience on earth. Come on, with a smile on our face because he's worthy. Come on, give him a, a, a big hand today. Let me give you another one. It's a a little similar but different. Uh, Romans chapter 1. God is not only worthy of our worship. He's not only worthy of our obedience, but he's worthy of our service. And let me say this to you today. Well, actually, just read the scripture. Paul, the apostle, writes, and it's interesting, his introduction to this letter. He's writing to uh, the church, the believers in Rome, and the way he introduces himself is Paul a servant of Christ Jesus. Isn't that interesting? First thing he says, he's a servant. Then he says, called to be an apostle. Then he says, set apart for the gospel of God. Can I suggest that's exactly the same uh, description for you and I as a Christian? We are first and foremost called to serve Jesus. That's what it means to follow Jesus. 
To follow Him is to serve Him. And then there's a calling. Everyone in this room has a calling from God. And I suggest your great challenge. One of the things we do in our Connect class, we have a, a spiritual gifts test we have people take. We, we have a coach that talks to them about their passions to try to get them plugged into doing something. We're not just interested in you filling a spot in this church. We want you to figure out what God's called you to do and do it because one day you're going to stand before him and give an account for your life. Well, this idea of being a servant, this is an interesting word. It's a Greek word, doulos. Your translation may say a slave. Or in the, in, in, in the uh, postscript, it might call it a bond slave or a bond servant. This word slave, by definition, it brings up the idea of permanent uh, servitude to another. When you think of slavery, think back to America's dark past. Or even think today where, 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 where uh, girls and boys are taken captive today across the world and sold as sex slaves. Something that's horrible. Neither one of those scenarios was something someone would willingly do. This is different. This is still slavery. It's still a servitude, but it's voluntary. This word means to be that your will is consumed in the will of, the, of another. So Paul said, the will for my life, what I want to do with my life is wrapped up with what God has called me to do. And he, it implies obedience and devotion. So here's my question. Why would anyone willingly, in today's world, submit themselves to voluntary servitude? Now, I know work sometimes feels like servitude. You have to go and the boss says you have to be there and you have to make so many tires and you have to get there and you have to teach so many stupid kids who don't want to be taught you. You just got to do all these. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about somebody that gets up in the morning and said, I'm going to serve the Lord today. I'm talking about somebody that not because they have to, but because they want to. My question, though, is what motivated Paul? Because Paul didn't just get to go to a church that had a nice stage and air conditioning and heating and blah, 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 blah. Paul was a guy who literally would endure all sorts of suffering. I mean, the Bible says three times he was beaten with rods. Imagine a stick as big as your finger, not hard that would break, but, but something that was soft enough that would give, but something that would just be brutal when your body was struck with it three times. He was stoned one time. He was shipwrecked. He, he said, I was often hungry. Why in the world would somebody want to go through that again? I mean, when Paul would preach in cities, they would say, we're glad you're here. When he would talk about Gentiles, they'd kick him out, and some, oftentimes they'd want to kill him. And he even had a, a group of Jews that were following him around trying to kill him. Why would he do that? I think I know the answer. Let, let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 1. And again, these are Paul's words. And mind you now, with all the hardship he went through, but did you know what? Paul's been dead a long time now. Paul's hardship lasted a while, but it didn't last too long. And now he's in heaven with the Lord, come on, to, his, to, to rejoice in what he's done forever and ever. But here's what he says in Timothy. I thank Christ Jesus, my Lord. Uh, any complainers in here other than me? Come on, when things don't go the way you want, uh, anybody get real frustrated when you pray and the prayer's not answered? Come on, uh, when you ask God to help you and instead of getting better, it gets worse. Any, anybody here, does that bother anybody? <laughs> But he says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, for he considered me trustworthy. Listen, and he appointed me to do what? To serve him. Now, listen, here's where I think the answer begins. Even though I used to blaspheme the name of Christ. 
In my insolence, I persecuted his people. Now, Paul was not always the author of the New Testament. At one time, he was Saul of Tarsus. He was a Jew that was bent on destroying the church, the ones that crucified Christ. He was going to finish the job, and he actually thought he was doing God a service. He would go in people's homes. He would take your child out of your home if you wouldn't renounce Christ. He was kind of ISIS embodied today. I mean, he was just on a holy a crusade, but it was a, it was a misguided crusade for God, and God saved him out of the middle of that. Do you know that when Paul would go to some of these churches, some of the children of the parents, come on, that he had killed were in that church? They'd be having potluck after church, and they'd say, there's somebody that wants to meet you here, Paul. And there would come a nine-year-old little boy. Now, who knows what that boy might say? That boy might say, you killed my daddy, but I forgive you. Or they may not even know what happened. Here's a child and he's with nobody. And Paul said, who's that wild child? He didn't belong to anybody. His parents are dead. What happened to him? Paul, I, I, he went through that, but somehow he found the mercy of God. And I suggest to you, this is why he served the Lord as he did. Verse 15 says, this is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I am the worst of all. Come on, anyone ever feel like that? Listen, I've, I committed sins in my youth that I didn't tell a soul for 20 years and I carried the shame of it all. Verse 16, God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst sinners. And then his doxology, verse 17, all honor and glory to God forever and ever. He is the eternal king, the unseen one who never dies, he alone is God. Amen. Now, I wonder if that same motivation that motivated Paul, when he just stopped to realize God and his goodness, come on, because a lot of people have just been snuffed out when they messed up. Listen, in my own life, I can think of one time when I probably should have been killed when I was acting foolishly. I can think of another time when I certainly should have been arrested and gone two times when I should have gone to jail, but none of those things happened. Somehow there was a merciful God, come on, that knew I was just stupid at 18 and 19 and he had a plan for my life. I guarantee you in this church today there are people who have abused their children and abused their spouse that have acted violently, people that have had their kids taken away from them and feel like a dog, come on, people that have divorced their families. I, I have seen a church member uh, in the past. I went to their home and their kids are begging them as they're leaving their wife, Daddy, please don't leave. Daddy, please don't leave. And they run out to the car and beg. And we carry the guilt and shame of our past. I would bet you there's someone in this church that has raped someone. Come on. There's many of us that carry the scars of abortion. I, there, we used to have a member of our church that had murdered someone and became a Christian in jail. And whatever you may be, whatever is triggered in your mind right now, maybe you used to sell drugs, and maybe you sold drugs to someone and you created meth addicts, and those meth addicts would take a wedding ring, come on, off mama's dresser, and they would go and hock it so they could buy a rock, a, some crack cocaine. And you created people like that, and then you got saved somehow. 
And I'm telling you, we can either live in shame and guilt and feel we're a nobody in God's kingdom, or we can receive His mercy like Paul did and said, you know what? I once was blind, but now I see. Though my sins were as scarlet, He makes them as white as snow. Come on. He is a good God, and He has washed me. He told me to run to Him, not run away from Him in my sinfulness. See, He is the one that has the power to heal and restore and redeem. His name is Jesus Christ. That's why He's worthy. That's why he's worthy of my service to him. And that's why even though it may be difficult to do what God's called us to do, we do it, come on, because he deserves it. Give him a big hand this morning. Let's look at one more. God is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our obedience. He's worthy of our service. But he's also worthy of our sacrifice. Let me read you a scripture, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, that every time I read it, 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 it makes me pause. The context here is Christians in Jerusalem are, are poor and in need. They're either poor because of the famine Agabus prophesied or certainly because they're still being persecuted in Jerusalem because what was, you know, that's, where, that's where it all started. And it was difficult as a believer to live. Well, anyway, Paul the apostle, a Jew, called to the Gentiles... But he taught them that Gentiles have a responsibility to help the Jews, that there is a sense of uh, uh, that we owe them because we were grafted into this same tree. And what he did is he, everywhere he'd go in these churches in, in the, in the uh, Mediterranean is he was raising an offering to go and help the saints in Jerusalem. Well, notice now, he, 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 he's, gonna, he's talking to the people of Corinth, but he's using an example from the churches in Macedonia. Here's what he said, verse 1. I want you to know what God in his kindness has done through the churches in Macedonia. Notice now, they're being tested by many troubles and they are... Is it up there? Next scripture. And they are... Say that one more time. Very poor. But they're also filled with... Very poor and abundant joy, which is overflowed... Enrich generosity. Now, does that not just seem like a huge contradiction to you? And, my, and I'm not asking you for anything today. There's no second offering, nothing like that, okay? <laughs> I'm just telling you something supernatural had happened in these people's lives, and they were poor as church mice, but they, they, they had something because they recognized what Christ had done in through them, through the Jewish people, that, that, that generosity well done. Now, I want you to listen to me if you're here today and you're poor or if you never seem to have enough. Listen, I want to tell you this, friend. More money and more things is not what's going to make you happy. What's going to make you happy is a relationship with Christ. And, and your relationship with Christ can go deeper and more powerful and more profound to the things of this world can matter less and less. And I want to tell you, I like things. And everybody said? But if you don't have the things of this life, I'm telling you, you can still have the joy of the Lord. Listen, verse 3 I can testify that they gave not only what they could afford, but they gave... Why? Why would a poor person give more than they could afford? They did it out of their own free will. In other words, no manipulation. But look at verse 4. This is what intrigues me. They begged us. Not just one time, but again and again. That suggests to me that Paul said, no, I can't take your money, or no, that's enough. But they begged again and again for the privilege of sharing in the gift for the believers in Jerusalem. 
So here's my question. Why were poor people begging for the opportunity to help these needy believers? I think it's very simple. It's because the Lord gave them what money cannot buy. He gave them abundant joy. And the joy that overflowed from their hearts because of the goodness of God, they wanted to respond in some way because God is worthy. You know, sacrifice characterizes people who have a deep relationship with God. Let me say it again. Sacrifice characterizes us when we have a deepening relationship with God. You remember when, when Jesus was, uh, was about to be crucified? It was just a day or two before, and this woman came in the room, and this woman had what was called a, a jar of, of perfume. It was, I think it was called nard or spikenard. Uh, but the Scripture went on to tell us it was worth a year's wages. Now, I want you to think about what you make in a year, not what you report on your tax return. Just kidding. What you make in a year, let's say it's 20,000 or 40,000 or 60 or 80 or 200,000, whatever it is, but I want you to think about a year's wages and somehow you got all that, that much money together and you went to the perfume shop and you bought one bottle of oil. And then you went to Jesus and you went up to him with tears in your eyes, knowing that he's about to be crucified. You wanted to do something. You ever hear the Make a Wish, make a Wish Foundation? What they do is kids that have a debilitating disease, teenagers, they'll send them somewhere. They'll bless them to, because they know difficulty is around the corner for them. They want them to enjoy and meet their dreams. Jesus is about to be crucified. This woman takes a year's wages. Come on. She could have bought a brand new camel Cadillac. She could have bought a whatever. But instead of that, she made this what seemed to be a great sacrifice. But to her was a great act of, 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 of joy because Christ was deserving of that little bit of oil and a little bit of money. Sacrifice. Remember the widow, the poor widow? Jesus is in the temple, and this widow, she had only two pennies. And Jesus said in the offering, she put both of them in, but Jesus said she put in more than everybody else. She put in all she had to live on. Why would anybody empty their wallet, come on, in a, in a church offering, and they wouldn't benefit a thing from it? I mean, come on, most people, if you only got a dollar, you're going to buy lottery tickets. If you can get some more. I hope not. But this woman just dumped it out. Why would she do that? Why would Peter? You remember the story where there's a rich young ruler and Jesus said, if you want eternal life, sell all you have, give it to the poor. Jesus realized his things were an idol in his life because he walked away from him. And then Peter says, we've sacrificed everything to follow you. Why would people make a sacrifice like that? I'll tell you, because they in their hearts knew that Christ is worthy. And anything that I can give. Remember in Revelation, he's worthy of the wealth. He's worthy of the glory. He's worthy of the power. He's worthy of anything I can give him. Uh, this was brought uh, to my attention very clearly yesterday in an unexpected way. Uh, I don't see him here, so I'm going to talk about him this morning. There's a church member. His name is Rush. And uh, Rush has been here probably 20 years, but you hadn't seen him much in the last 10 years. He's confined to a wheelchair. Now, he is a big guy. Really big guy, and he's got this electric wheelchair, and uh, he just had the joy of the Lord all over him yesterday. I actually thought he still lived in hooks, and probably because he couldn't get around, was going to church somewhere else. I just hadn't seen him in a long time. Anyway, so he told me yesterday he had, he had moved to town here. He was going to be coming back to church, and then this is what he told me. He said, I've been thinking about this, and he told me the apartments he lived in, and it seems like they're a couple miles away. And he told me how he was going to drive that wheelchair to church. And he said, but I can't go down Mall Drive because it narrows down there with that railroad track. And I know I'd get run over there. But he talked to me about I'm going to cross the median here. And I'm going to go down this sidewalk. And then I'm going to go on this edge of the road because it's got some gravel on it. 
And I'm thinking to myself, why would anybody do this? Come on. Lots of churches that are closer and all. It's not the stage. It's not the preacher. But that's where he connects with God in worship. And he was willing to do anything he could to get here. Here this guy is sitting down there. And I'm looking at myself in my little preacher suit. And he took a, he took a, uh, a cord. And his leg was so inoperative that he put it around his cord so he could put it in the, you know, where you hold your feet in the wheelchair. But I hadn't been around as many people that had as much joy of the Lord in my life in quite a while as he did. And I'm looking at the same thing that I looked at in Amy McCartney as she faced difficulty in her life. I looked at people who'd found the joy of the Lord come on in spite of what they'd gone through. And in the middle of their trouble, they made a sacrifice to God, come on, because He is worthy of our praise. Not because of how I feel or how I'm doing, but because the one is worthy and He is deserving. Let me close with this. We're back in Revelation chapter 4, and then we'll have a, a closing song and, 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 and we'll have a, a personal prayer. We're back in heaven. We're in Revelation 4. It's the same groups that are there. But I want you to think, listen on this with me. It's in heaven. Day and night, these four living creatures never stop saying, say it with me, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, verse 10, the 24 elders, that's probably us, fall down before him who sits on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever. And notice what they do. They lay their crowns before the throne and they say, you are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and they have their being. You are worthy. Crowns in the scripture, it's a good argument can be made that our rewards that will be in some way crowned for the believer for their good works. So whatever that crown may look like, I'm not sure. But what I want you to see here is they're taking that crown and they're giving it back to Christ. My wife, bless her heart, she was in Mexico there and leading the team. And uh, it was dark outside and she was walking down the edge of a mountain and she fell and just banged her head bad. You probably thought she and I had a fight, but I mean, we didn't. She's got, that's a joke, okay? I mean, she's got this bad gash. I mean, she, she goes into the doctor. She's bleeding. She's in shock. And... Uh, uh, the doctor, she said, I'm laying on the table in this Mexican emergency room, and this doctor is going, ay, 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 ay. That's not good. When your doctor says, ah, caramba. And he did a good job. She said he stitched it, had to do it three times to get it all lined back up. He said, it's like her forehead exploded. Now, look, if that was me and probably you, We'd have had to rent it a private jet, come on, and flown it down there and take me back, make me back to, to Texas. But bless her heart, she, uh, she just took a day off, and the next day she's riding a van four hours one way just to go and preach in a little village, come on, where the people walk barefoot and don't know anything about Christ. Now, if I read my Bible correctly, she's going to be honored for that by God and rewarded. But she's going to take that crown and take it off of her head 
and she's going to put it at the feet of Jesus because he is the one that's deserving of all our praise. Come on, give the Lord Jesus a big hand today. We bless him because he alone is worthy. Why don't you stand to your feet and we're going to sing a song and, and let me just encourage you to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you in just this moment. What is God saying to you from what you've heard?